Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the podcast. We are joined uh, by uh, one of the people we've come to depend on for uh, candid and thoughtful views from Capitol Hill, Congressman Eric Swalwell of the 15th Congressional District. How are you doing today, Congressman? I'm good. Thanks for having me back, uh, David. I hope you had a good fourth. Uh, We spent it in the Midwest where my wife is from. I've got a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and we've got number three on the way. So we're just trying to figure out how the hell we're going to do this. Uh, So (laughs) that's where we're at. Yeah, well, sounds like you've, you've got your hands full, but I have to say, You have kept uh, uh, extremely busy on multiple fronts in in the Capitol. First of all, in terms of your role uh, as as one of the the leading members of Congress on a whole host of issues. Uh, Secondly, your book, Endgame Inside the Impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, which came out a year ago, has come out uh, again after a year in the paperback edition. And whereas some people write a paperback edition and it says updated, which means you know they edited it and took out the mistakes, uh, at least that was in my experience. Uh, this 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 version of Endgame has I think forty pages, new pages, four new chapters, looking at sort of the ensuing year, the election, the uh, uh, assault on the Capitol the second impeachment trial, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, your first, the first time around this book was one of the first perspectives from somebody right at the middle of the impeachment effort. Um, and uh, I think you've done it again here. Your, your, your account of January 6th is, uh, is, is uh, thoughtful and one of the best inside accounts I've seen anywhere. Uh, congratulations on, uh, on 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 an update to the book that's really significant. Uh, thanks, David. You know, we added uh, yes, four chapters from insurrection, impeachment, inauguration, and then trial, uh, and then we added an S to the title because it's now the impeachments of Donald Trump. Uh, and it's, I guess four chapters. I wish we didn't have to write for the sake, uh, you know, of the country, uh, but. I thought it was important, you know, having that vantage point uh, to chronicle what happened on the 6th, how the decision was made to try and again impeach Donald Trump, and then the teamwork uh, that went into the the trial. And, you know, as the book lays out, you know, my colleagues and I, you know, having been traumatized by the 6th, tried to put that aside to present to the country the case for why Donald Trump should never hold office again. And we actually found it was quite cathartic for us uh, to research the case, piece the evidence together and make the case to the Senate and the public 
uh, for ourselves uh, to kind of cope with what we'd experienced, what our country had experienced. Uh, I think we all came out of it, um, you know, feeling better, uh, you know, than what we went through on the 6th. You know, I, I obviously followed that extremely closely and followed the ensuing trial extremely closely um, and have watched the evolution uh, in views, particularly on the GOP side of the aisle from not so uh, veiled outrage, even of the Mitch McConnell types in the immediate wake of, of the 6th to now a unified front from the Republican party saying, let's not look into this, let's not follow up on this. Um, you know, uh, no, no real decrying of members of the party who said it was just tourists visiting the Capitol. Six months after January 6th, we just passed the six month anniversary, what kind of grade would you give um, the Congress of the United States in responding to it? Well, it would be, I think, a split uh, verdict. You know, certainly my Republican colleagues have shown almost no courage on this front, with the exception of Kinzinger and Cheney. Even those who voted, uh, David, for impeachment, you know, there were 10 Republicans. The other eight have gone underground. And I guess that's what happens with Donald Trump goes to your district or supports a primary opponent, things get real and people are tested. And the two people who have shown that they don't care, as Adam Kinziger said in one interview last week, I don't give a shit about losing committee assignments for trying to be on the select committee. Uh, you know, it, if that's the case, you know, if you do worry, then you're going to see few standing up for what's right. Thankfully, those two, I think, have set the model as to what you know, a responsible Republican Party could look like. On the Democratic side, uh, you know, look, we tried to impeach and remove him. Uh, we have sought to have this bipartisan uh, committee, seen that that wasn't possible in the Senate. We've set up a select committee. I don't think Speaker Pelosi is going to wait for Kevin McCarthy to screw around uh, and nominate people. You know, she has a quorum right now, and she implied that, that if he's going to play games or put, you know, try and put you know, the, the pro-insurrectionist crowd and his caucus on the committee that she's going to move uh, right ahead. And I think what's most important is knowing that the dynamics in the country have not changed. Donald Trump thinks he's going to be reinstated as president. Uh, you know, he's got these audits going on across the country. We are no more protected at the Capitol because the Senate won't pass the security uh, measures that we've passed in the House. Uh, we are very vulnerable to another event like this happening again. So uh, we have to move swiftly and as much as we can, uh, we are doing that, at least on the House side. You know, it feels a little bit like um, the coup is ongoing. You know, the coup attempt is ongoing. If you uh, have senior leadership in the Republican Party in the Senate and in the House um, uh, defending or downplaying an actual assault on the Congress and particularly an assault on the process of selecting the president, as January 6th was the day that that was supposed to be um, uh, ratified by the Congress. Um, uh, it, it's, it's not just you know, playing it down, it's, it's validating it or it's setting a precedent that this is not something um, that, that we should uh, decry. Um, you've, you've taken an interesting step in this and I don't know to what extent you can talk about it, but you, you've also uh, uh, in the midst of all of this other thing, you've, you've also uh, launched a, a lawsuit, uh, perhaps you can describe the rationale behind it 
I am certain you can't talk about all the elements of it. Yeah, David, I've brought a suit against Donald Trump, Don Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and Congressmember Mo Brooks uh, simply for accountability. I believe they uh, were responsible for inciting, inflaming, assembling, and aiming the mob at the Capitol to stop me uh, as an office holder from counting the electoral college votes and also a mob that uh, you know terrorized myself uh, and my colleagues. Uh, and so, uh, you know, yes, a benefit of that for the public uh, eventually, I, I suppose, would be that there is a discovery and deposition process. Um, but you know, for me, the the benefit is accountability and making sure that you know those wrongs uh, are righted, that those individuals. Uh, committed. Uh, and I've never filed, unlike Donald Trump, I've never filed a lawsuit in my life. You know, I, I gave a lot of thought to this. I told our legal team, I didn't want to do anything that was frivolous. I would, I only wanted to do it if we could succeed on the merits. And they do believe that there is a case to be made that Donald Trump uh, was way outside the bounds of his official duties uh, when he uh, incited and aimed this mob uh, at me and my colleagues. Uh, yeah, I, I was quite interested. Uh, there were a little, there was a little action in the suit this week because it had taken you a while to track down Congressman Brooks, and uh, he, you know, the, 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 there were a variety of different decisions taken this week. But I was struck by the fact that he's sort of offered up as a defense of his behavior, where he sort of stood on a platform and exhorted people to go uh, up, uh, up to the Capitol. Uh, that he's a public official and can say anything he wants. Uh, yeah, this, the Mo Brooks piece is really interesting. One, uh, he literally thought this was like a, uh, you know, a Three Stooges production where if he avoided service long enough, he could avoid responsibility. But as you know, that it's not like that. The courts actually frown upon people who don't cooperate uh, and accept service. Um, he was finally served. And then of course he made a big to do about it and is trying to put the poor process server who chased him around for months you know, in jail. Uh, second, uh, yes, his argument is essentially the Twinkie defense, uh, which is that um, Donald Trump invited him and he was so brainwashed by Donald Trump that had Donald Trump not invited him, he would not have given that speech. Uh, and, and oh, by the way, uh, Mo Brooks, who has spent his entire career trying to reduce the role of government wants the government to defend him in this suit. So, uh, you know, he doesn't want anyone else to have any government benefit, but if he could save a penny, you know, from defending himself for his conduct and have the government do it, uh, he's willing to freeload uh, in that style. So I, I don't think it's gonna survive. I don't think you can argue that you're in your official act when you are at the invitation of a political candidate, because this is not Donald Trump saying come to an official White House event. He's Donald Trump saying come to a campaign event. And I, I do think once, once you cross into the campaign realm, you lose some of that uh, you know, immunity uh, that you're afforded. You know, I, I'm very struck. I, I read through, I mean, I read your book last year when it came out, I read these new chapters. Um, I was very struck by the, uh, the, the very, very end when you're talking about the, uh, the the, the witnesses that you'd wanted to call in on, on January 6th and that you had a text exchange with Officer Fanone 
uh, and uh, talked about how the witnesses didn't want to come in. And he wrote back, tell them I said, grow a pair and do what's right. If I can endure the ass kicking of a lifetime, then they can deal with a little political fallout. Tell them it's their penance. Um, I, I was struck because it's, he's right. It's compelling. It's part of the reason it's a very good book because it's very lively. Um, but also, uh, they, they, there hadn't been much penance for them. Do you think people are going to appear before the, this uh, uh, select committee and, and actually testify? I, I think you're going to see most of the Trump witnesses follow the Trump, you know, the Trump style, which is to you know, avoid the subpoena, you know, almost Mo Brooks style, probably try and avoid even being served and then fight the subpoenas in the court and try and what I call, you know, McGanning us, uh, you know, going as high up as you can, taking as long as you can. And it, I guess it's just a matter of, you know, will the courts recognize the importance of this committee and, and move fast enough to litigate these issues uh, so that we can have resolution before, you know, the next election, uh, before the next electoral college certification, certainly. But David, also, you know, the many of the witnesses will not have the same claims uh, or of defenses that they had when Donald Trump was in power, because there are a lot of protections, you know, executive privilege protections that exist, you know, when you are actually in office uh, that are no longer there uh, when you leave office. And so, um, they, they won't have as many claims, but I, I don't expect them to be any more willing to testify. I, I also laid out in the book, we had a good lead that Mark Short, Mike Pence's chief of staff, may want to testify. So a, a Republican who knew Short uh, sent me Short's number and, and said, uh, look, you know, I, I, I'm hearing that he may want to talk. And so once we were sure that we'd be able to call witnesses, I called Short. He didn't answer, left a couple of voicemails, sent a couple of text messages. He called me back and, you know, I, I answered and I thought, boy, okay, here we go. We're going to have a, a live witness to talk to. And it was weird. Uh, no one spoke. So I don't know if it was like a misdial or he had second thoughts, but no one answered. And the next morning, uh, his attorney reached out to our attorney and said that if you subpoena him, he will fight you. Uh, all the way up uh, the courts. And so again, we, we knew during the Senate trial that any witness we called in the Trump universe, it was gonna take years to litigate just as it did with Don McGahn. And so we didn't think it was worth dragging out an impeachment trial for two years. Uh, I don't have that problem in my litigation personally. The select committee, uh, you know, they're not gonna have the same pressures of the Senate bearing down on them. Uh, and so I, I do hope they're willing to litigate and make sure that Congress's equities of oversight are protected. Yeah, there has been some hesitation to uh, to, to litigate, uh, and also Republicans have used to great advantage this argument that it's just going to be in the courts for a long, long time uh, to get things tabled or set aside. Um, I think one of the most disturbing aspects of the Trump period was that the checks that we thought existed within our system, uh, particularly in terms of separation of powers, the checks that existed within the, 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 the Congress on the executive branch don't really work so well 
if the executive branch doesn't care to honor them. And, and it's the same with congressional subpoenas. I think when you were a prosecutor in, was it Alameda County? That's California, right. If you guys subpoenaed somebody and they responded the way people respond to congressional subpoenas, they'd be in the <laughs> slammer, right? I mean, we, how does the system work if, if Congress actually only has a, uh, you know, kind of optional subpoena power? David, actually, uh, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, if people responded that way in the criminal courts, uh, they would be in the slammer. And if the courts responded as slow as the courts have with Congress, no murderer would ever be in the slammer because I wouldn't have been able to get any of the reluctant you know, witnesses uh, to come in. And so Adam Schiff, I think, has the best legislation on this. And I'm one of the original uh, sponsors of it. It's called the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which would essentially create a fast track to the courts for congressional oversight subpoenas, recognizing that uh, you know Donald Trump has exposed this vulnerability where you can try and run out the clock. You know he did that with us on impeachment one. Uh, we were victims of this during the Mueller investigation, and certainly during impeachment two, it was a big factor in deciding how to proceed with witnesses. And so now that that's been exposed, I think it's incumbent upon us to try and fix it. And so you know I, I think. And I hope we'll get that passed in the House. And, and by the way, David, I, I would hope Republicans now that Joe Biden is in office and they're so high on believing that they're going to be in the majority in the next Congress, they're not, but they believe that, that they would look at this legislation and say, well, if we want to hold Joe Biden accountable and we don't want him to do to us what Donald Trump did to the Democrats, that they would see it was in their interest to support this because, you know, power will change again. Uh, in Washington. Uh, but these issues, uh, if they don't go away, uh, Congress will uh, have no teeth. Well, you know, and, and of course, the, the likelihood of a uh, resolution that comes from the, you know, Adam Schiff and you and is passed by the Democrats in the House passing through the Senate right now, it's pretty close to zero, so long as filibuster remains in place. Um, and you know, having said that, I mean, you know, you bring up a point. If the Congress shifts hands, you know, the likelihood that Mitch McConnell obliterates the filibuster uh, as majority leader also seemed pretty high to me. What's your view on the state of that particular aspect of all of this? Because again, if there's a lesson of Trump that comes through in yeah. your book, without effective congressional oversight, president can do whatever he wants. That's right. Uh, and actually, I have a, a different view on McConnell, because in 2017, Donald Trump was president, McConnell was the majority leader, and Paul Ryan was the speaker. And they achieved their, you know, the tax plan uh, that lowered the tax rates for the wealthiest in America. They came very close, you know, on uh repealing the Affordable Care Act. But I believe that the reason that McConnell did not break the filibuster, whether it was for the Affordable Care Act or whether it was for, you know, to, to ban abortions, he knew he could. And he, as he has shown no willingness, you know, to really be consistent to how he's felt in the past. I think he judged that if he broke the filibuster for those pieces of legislation, it would be wildly unpopular and that they would maybe have a short-term gain, uh, but long-term loss you know, in the Senate. Whereas I think it's just the opposite with the issues that we're trying to take up. 
right? So Affordable Care Act, wildly popular in the country. Abortion, at least the rules that exist today, are supported by an overwhelming majority uh, of people uh, in the country. Now, voting rights, background checks, a January 6th commission, all being blocked by the Republicans' use of the filibuster. If we broke the filibuster to pass those, I don't think there's a political price to pay at all. I, I think you would be enacting what an overwhelming majority of the country wants. And, and that's why I think um, we should do it. Uh, and that's why I, I, I don't buy the argument that if we do it, uh, we open up Pandora's box and McConnell will ban abortion. He won't ban abortion because I think he knows that he would be using a tool, breaking the filibuster, to enact something that is not popular. And they would go into the minority for a very long, long time. So I think you still have the, the public sentiment pressure out there. Uh, and instead, it's being used to stop us from delivering the public sentiment uh, when it's very much needed. So going back to the core theme of the book, and uh, quite apart from your own uh, lawsuit, uh, but looking ahead at this committee, what does accountability for all this look like? I mean, you know, some people make the argument that both impeachment trials, uh, even if they did not result in a conviction, um, uh, will color the judgment of history. And of course, that's an important form of accountability not to be minimized. But is that what we have to look forward to? I mean, you know, it's basically, I mean, Donald Trump's not gonna read any of those history books. Um, or is there a, a form of accountability that may have more teeth more imminently for some of the perpetrators? Yeah, so the theme of the book was, you know, essentially we are, you know, in the end game, which is a, you know, a chess term for, you know, the end of a chess match. And I posited that essentially Trumpism was going to prevail and, and we'd see the, you know, devolution of the rule of law, uh, you know, market capitalism, uh, independence of the Department of Justice that would all go away uh, and it would look more like a autocracy or that we would reaffirm, you know, democracy. Uh, what has ultimately happened is we're almost in overtime right now because I, I don't think we've settled Trumpism versus democracy, but every single day that one of us holds Donald Trump accountable or shines light on his corruption or the corruption of the people around him, I think is a day that we're closer to defeating this demon of democracy uh, that is Trumpism. Uh, and it really you know, is a tribute as well to the, the example I use in the book is the, you know, the Parkland generation uh, who after Parkland, you know, these students picked themselves up out of unimaginable tragedy and they went across the country. And in 2018, they were a part of an effort that beat 19 NRA endorsed members of Congress. And then the next year, they saw background checks, the most sweeping gun safety legislation passed in decades, passed in the House of Representatives. Now we're waiting for that to be passed in the Senate, but their activism and their agency, I think, and their participation shows that, you know, we can, you know, either save the country from Trumpism or make the changes uh, that will protect all of us. So it's really, you know, I think a call to action to, you know, keep moving your feet, whether it's the Women's March, whether it's a March for Our Lives, you know, whether it's a march to the courtroom to hold Donald Trump uh, accountable, uh, you know, keep marching uh, because there's work to do uh, and a democracy that's on the line. So we just have uh, four, four or five minutes left. I, 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 following up on that, 
you talk about Trumpism, uh, you talk about the fact that we're kind of in overtime on this kind of thing. Uh, despite all of this, despite being clearly behind this coup attempt, um, uh, despite a man, man, manifold lawsuits being brought against him, the former president remains not just an active figure on, on, on the American political stage, but apparently a rather intimidating force within the Republican Party. People are afraid of him. Uh, he's out there doing uh, rallies. Um, and, and, and yesterday, the, uh, we were recording this on a Thursday, the president launched a lawsuit against Twitter and Facebook for banning him. Um, uh, you know, he's really trying to maybe out there and stay central. Do you think that can last? Oh, yeah, it's going to last because I've seen up close and personal the lack of courage that my Republican colleagues have. And so they enable this because they're not willing to stand up uh, to him. I'll give you an example, right? Uh, Tony Gonzalez, Congressman Anthony Gonzalez from Ohio, well-known football star, he's got his own personality, wins a seat in Congress, was a part of the effort on the House floor to like, you know, batten down the hatches essentially to, you know, move furniture to save us from the mob. Then he votes uh, to impeach Donald Trump. Donald Trump endorses his primary opponent, goes to his congressional district. And what happens the next week? Tony Gonzalez votes against the select committee. And, and so again, what Don Donald Trump does is effective. And what frustrates me is that in many ways, I feel like I serve with a lot of Republicans who believe that this is the only job that they can get, uh, that they can't get another job, which again, when you're in Congress, you wanna think that you were serving with people who are otherwise employable, but if that's your mindset, then you're gonna do anything to keep your job. And if you're afraid of Donald Trump supporting a primary opponent, you're just gonna keep going down the rabbit hole with Donald Trump. And what's so funny on the example of Donald Trump suing Twitter and Facebook, David, my Republican colleagues, as long as I've been in Congress, as long as I've been alive, they have argued that Democrats want to overregulate, involve themselves in the free markets, and that we should just let the markets decide, right? Well, what is Twitter and Facebook and other platforms deciding that he shouldn't be on their platforms? That's the markets deciding. What is his lawsuit saying? That the government should be involved in a private uh, company's decision-making, which is crazy, but he's gotten all of the Republicans to get behind him now because he was kicked off of Twitter. So they've abandoned, you know, decades of, uh, you know, principles that they've had around, you know, the government and markets just because a couple of platforms kicked them off. That's the power of Donald Trump. And that's the weakness uh, of too many people who don't have confidence that they could be employed somewhere else. Yeah, but you're an attorney and you know, these lawsuits <laughs> will never happen, right? because it's a grift, right? It's to, to raise money. That's it's to what raise he's doing. Money because Twitter, you know, would then have to prove they were, you know, they had a right to do what they were doing and they could easily seek to depose Donald Trump on various threats he posed to the United States. And he's never, ever, ever going to testify yeah. because he would spend more time in jail and perjury for one <laughs> round of testimony 
than he would for anything else he ever did. Isn't that right? Or am I? Uh, no, that's exactly right. He, he doesn't just get to file these lawsuits and uh, hold up a shield that keeps him from sitting in a deposition chair. And I, I think he has proven that he has never met the truth in his life. And that would come with some consequences under oath. Um, well, all I can say is, first of all, I'm grateful for the time. Secondly, uh, enjoy Indiana. Uh, uh, thirdly, end game inside the impeachments of Donald Trump uh, was a great book last year and is a much better paperback, very relevant. People who read it before should read it again. These inside takes are uh, extremely valuable. Uh, and your leadership has been extremely valuable. And that's why we're so glad uh, when you come back and we hope we'll see you again soon. Of course, of course. And thank you for all you're doing to remind us every day what's at stake and we're not powerless. So thank you, Dave. Th thank you, Congressman. And we'll talk to you soon. Uh, and thank you everybody for listening uh, and stay safe out there. Bye-bye. <laughs>